church family, if you would take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to Leviticus chapter 18 this morning. Sermon entitled, God's Design for Sex. We'll be looking at the last seven verses of Leviticus 18. So I'll just be reading a portion of all that we're covering, but wanted to cover this part. The precious and errant infallible word of God says these things. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all, for by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled, therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants." You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, and shall not commit any of these abominations, either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. For all these abominations the men of the land have done who were before you, and thus the land is defiled. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. For whoever commits any of these abominations, the persons who commit them shall be cut off from among their people." Therefore, you shall keep my ordinance so that you do not commit any of these abominable customs which were committed before you, and that you do not defile yourselves by them. I am the Lord your God. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank him for his word this morning. Gracious Father, we do pray that you would speak to us this morning, that you would convict us of sin. And test our hearts. Lord, we pray that you might break our hard hearts among us and bring healing. That you might strengthen the weak and edify Christ's body. Father, we long to hear from you. We pray your word would be clearly taught and your people would work hard to understand that we might feast on your word this morning. Grant us grace and show us Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, sweetheart. One of the very first times uh, our current GROW class gathered together outside of the church for dinner was on Super Bowl Sunday. We were thrilled. We've been trying to get together for a while and have an event outside of local church time, and so we were excited to gather together. Of course, back then we still had Sunday night church, and so Everyone arrived at Brother Brad's house after church, and we got there right as the halftime performance was beginning. The performers that year were the musical artist Shakira and Jennifer Lopez. It didn't take very long into the halftime performance to recognize this was a terrible idea for our first church get-together, as the inappropriate dancing and outfits continued for the next 20 minutes. I just vividly remember everyone in Brad's house surrounded by televisions, constantly trying to avert their eyes from said televisions. But what I found especially interesting was an article that was sent to my phone the next day. The title read something to the effect of, Jennifer Lopez brings daughter on stage to sing at the Super Bowl during a family-friendly performance. A show that was good for any age. My point in this story is simple. It's very obvious that in today's times, 
Family-friendly, as defined by our culture, means something very different than family-friendly, as defined by the Lord. And the question that we have before us is simply, who will we follow? In fact, that's really the big idea of this morning's text in Leviticus 18. Israel was to follow the way of the Lord and not the way of the nations. That is the big idea. Israel was to follow the Lord, the way of the Lord, and not the way of the nations. But before we dive into the text, I did want to go ahead and just give you the, the structure of the passage before us. Uh, and I feel like, uh, yeah, I did write that into your notes so that there's no fill in the blanks. Because I'm really just going to go over this particular structure uh, the way I find it in the text. And you can take some time on your own uh, to kind of agree or disagree. I've folded this paper terribly. That's not how it's supposed to be folded. Uh, so, uh, I want us to, to see last week we started with verse 1 through 5, which formed our introduction. We looked at that last week. The big idea, remember, following the Lord, not the nations. For the way of the Lord, as it closes in verse 5, leads to life. That's verses 1 through 5. And then as we move from 1 through 5 to verses 6 through 23, what we have is we have what I call these specific danger zones. And so, if people of Israel were not to follow the ways of the nation and were to follow the ways of the Lord, these are some specific areas Israel would have to be very careful in. And specifically, those two areas are sex and worship. That's what we see in verses 6 through 20. False sexual practices that should not be practiced by Israel. Then, in verse 21, sandwiched right in between there, that's a chiasm, We have worship. Seems a little out of place, but remember, it's meant to emphasize that and tie these things together, which really should teach you that you you can't really ever separate sex and worship. And then verses 22 and 23 return to the theme of false or prohibited sexual practices. And then we come to the conclusion that we just read in verse 24 through 30. Here, it's really returning to follow the Lord and not the nations, because the way of the nations leads to death. So, if the introduction in the first five verses is follow the Lord, not the, ways, uh, not the nations, for the ways of the Lord lead to life, then this is follow the way of the Lord, not the nations, because the way of the nations leads to death. So, that's a contrast we see made between the ways of the nations and the ways of the Lord. Okay, that's, that's just the first part of that, um, that breakdown and structure for you. What I want to do now is, is I want to kind of look at this in a little bit more detail. And I want to start by looking simply at the prohibition against the ways of the nations. And then we'll, we'll move to looking at the ways of the Lord and how He provides safety in them. And finally, we're going to take those and apply them to us here and now on this side of the cross. So first, very first thing we see is we find the danger or the prohibition of the ways of the nations. Uh, That is the prohibition of the ways of the nations. When I use nations, by the way, I'm sometimes going to use the word world or world systems, cultures, societies, and I'm going to use those terms synonymously. Most of the time I'll use nations, but if I say the others, I'm talking about the same thing. In regards to our text in chapter 18, we must really understand... That Egypt and Canaan are are representative of the nations. They are merely representative 
of the nations. When it uses Egypt and Canaan, it is in a, in a way a microcosm of the rest of the world. They are representative of the world and the world system. Now I'll say this morning, we're going to say some hard things about the nations in general. I do want us to keep something in mind, and that is, by God's common grace, by God's common grace, no nation or nations as a whole are as wicked as they could be. Did you know that? It might be hard for you to believe that this day, but actually, God in His restraining grace is preventing nations from being as wicked as they could be. He does restrain sin. Egypt and Canaan. They were certainly depraved cultures, absolutely, but there were aspects still of their culture, in fact, that reflected the goodness and beauty of the Lord. Many, but, and this is important for us to understand, uh, Egypt and Canaan were really representative of the nations, regardless of how they may reflect the Lord in some ways, regardless, all the nations set themselves up against God. This is another thing we really need to hear Hear this, all nations set themselves up against God. There are no nations, political systems, nor economic structures that has as its ultimate goal the glory of God. Every nation in the ancient Near East was part of this world system. And this is as true today as it was 3,000 years ago. No culture or society as a whole seeks after the Lord. Not one. Why the psalmist asks in Psalm 2, he says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in peace and cast away their cords from us. These these nations that rage and these people that plot, they are part of this current broken world system and they are allied with the dominion of darkness. Now, I know that in our modern minds, we don't think in such terms, but the reality is... Satan exercises authority over nations, leading them to wage war against God's people. In fact, this is why Satan could offer Jesus the kingdoms of this world when he was tempting Jesus in the wilderness. The nations are enslaved to Satan. They are, in a sense, his John confirms this in his first epistle when he writes in 1 John 5, 19, The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so, when Christ returns, there will not be a single nation or culture left unchanged. There will not be a single nation or culture not without the need of the redemption which Christ Will bring. And so the way of the nations was a danger to the people of God. It's why this prohibition is here, because primarily the way of the nations contradicts and opposes the will of God. See, the nations do what is right in their own eyes, and they tempt God's people to do the same. Sexual relationships and practices are a primary example of this in every single culture. In fact, there are few gifts more perverted by the nations than the gift of sex. In the ancient Near East, as in our own culture, sex and worship were overlapping categories. 
We need to understand that. In the ancient Near East, in the place and time of Israel, these were overlapping categories. Sexual acts were often integrated with the cultic practice of the nations. Many temples, in fact, provided prostitutes and sexual acts performed before their patron god so that they would win them favor. Many fertility gods who are said to be responsible for the fruitfulness and the harvest of the womb often required religious rites that involved perverse sexual activity. Even animals were sometimes involved in these rites. And all of this was considered an act of worship. But of course, in our own culture, we see a similar phenomenon. We do. Hear me. The preferred God of our culture is not the goddess of fertility, but the God of pleasure. We have become faithful constituents of the temple of self-gratification. We sell our souls for immediate gratification and consume unfiltered Anything that entertains or pleases us. Anything. And the reality is, few things please us like sex. So Peter Kreft wrote, he wrote this, he said, Sex is the effective religion of our culture. It's really become a religion in and of itself. Our culture feasts on the suggestive, on the sensual, and the erotic. Our appetites have become insatiable. And the irony of ironies is that our immoral culture sees itself as morally sophisticated because we've abandoned the moral absolutes revealed to it by God. The reality is, we are just horribly deaf and blind. It's worth noting, though, that often God's greatest gifts are the ones that the nations pervert the most. Have you ever noticed that? God's greatest gifts are the ones that the nations pervert the most. Do you see that? They are the ones who are often most twisted and misused. Despite the common spin, hear me, God is not a prude killjoy who is uncomfortable with sex. Hear this. Sex is God's idea. In fact, it's God's gift to humanity. God created it. God ordained it. God blessed it. Sexual relations were given as the pleasurable means of being fruitful and multiplying. That's the Bible's way of saying having babies. New life is brought into the world through the precious gift of sex. And we, the church, should be the first to say so. But it was not merely given for procreation. Sex is meant to strengthen the bond of two people becoming one flesh. That is, sex is meant to bind two people together, to strengthen the marriage covenant and enhance the reciprocal love meant to mark every marriage relationship. And so, sexual intercourse is intended to be a glue that binds two people formally separated Together and to keep them bound together for life. In fact, uh, this reality of, of sex binding people into one body was one of the reasons Paul gave for not sleeping with prostitutes in 1 Corinthians 6. If you recall, Paul writes, he says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? 
Certainly that was not that person's intention, yet, yet Paul is able to write that by having sex with her, he became one body with her. He continues, for the two, he says, shall become one flesh. Church family, sex is good and beautiful as long as it's enjoyed how God intends. But look, it, it even gets better. Sex is even more important than simply providing a way for procreation or allowing for two people to be bound together. The real and ultimate purpose is to point to God. Ultimately, sex was designed for this purpose. In fact, uh, Bruce Marshall wrote a novel called The Word, the Flesh, and Father Smith. And in that, he wrote this provocative sentence. Listen to this. He says... The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Bruce Marshall recognizes that there is a deep connection between sex and God. John Piper explains this connection. He writes this in his book, Sex and the Supremacy of God. The ultimate reason, not the only one, why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. The language and imagery of sexuality is the most graphic and most powerful that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between God and His people, both positively when we are faithful and negatively when we are not. God created us with sexual passion so that there would be language to describe what it means to cleave to Him in love and what it means to turn away from Him to other gods. And, and friends, you find that throughout Scripture. For example, I gave this to you in your text this week, Ezekiel 16. It paints this wonderful picture of God finding Israel, cleansing her, waiting for her to come of age, and then taking her to Himself and covenanting with her. It's a picture of marriage and intimacy. But, but Israel was unfaithful, and the betrayal goes on. The point is, God ultimately created us as sexual beings that we might know Him more. But as it's clear from just a very superficial understanding of our culture, the nations in general misuse and abuse this gracious gift. The nations at the time of Israel did all the things the Lord prohibited Israel to do in chapter 18. Egypt was recognized around the world for its sexual immorality. It was well known for uh, its incest that was practiced by the Egyptian royal family. Canaan was famed for its encouragement of homosexuality and even bestiality. In fact, the very practices condemned in chapter 18 were performed regularly in the temples of Canaan. But Israel was not to follow their corrupt and depraved practices. They were instead to follow the Lord. In fact, this struck me this past week as I was reading this. In, in the book of Numbers we read probably the most powerful example of the danger of the way of the nations. If you call what happens in Numbers, in Numbers 22 through 24, there's a this, there's this story of Balaam being called by the king of Moab, Balak. And Balak wants Balaam to curse the nations. And so you've got three chapters in Numbers of the story of the seer of the nations attempting to curse Israel on behalf of the Moabite king. And God just completely undoes their plan. It's actually, it's a comedy. It is a comedy in scripture. All that comes out of Balaam's mouth that are intended to be curses for Israel are reversed into blessings. He, he can't not speak Blessings, right? Uh, he stands in several different places, and yet all that comes out of his mouth are blessings. And the Lord in that story is revealing himself as faithful and sovereign. 
His commitment to Israel is proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. What's incredible about this is in this story, there is absolutely nothing this mighty seer can do against Israel. There is nothing that this mighty king of Moab can do against God's people. And then Numbers 25 comes along. After God has wiped out the king of Moab's plan and the seer's plan, look what happens at the beginning of Numbers 25. Now Israel remained in the Achaia grove and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor and the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. What just happened? You have three chapters of the Lord refusing to let anything harm Israel so that this mighty seer, internationally known as the one who is able to speak on behalf of God and the mighty king of Moab, can do nothing to harm Israel. And here we have a handful of women who are given to Israel. And within a day, 24,000 will die. Don't miss the seriousness of this temptation and the severity of the consequences of succumbing to it. Listen, this story in, in, in Numbers 25 is, is some of the most nuts among Scripture. I mean, it's just chaos ensues in the camp of Israel. And the anger of the Lord is kindled. So a plague breaks out immediately and people begin dying. And Moses orders the chiefs to, to hang those who are practicing in this harlotry. And the scene is just awful. I mean, people begin gathering at the tent of meeting and they're just mourning. mourning. They're crying out to the Lord. They're dying left and right. I mean... 24,000 bodies add up very quickly. And, and here in the midst of all this chaos, a man in the camp of Israel takes a Moabite princess in the full view of everyone and begins to fornicate with her. So that Phineas becomes so overwhelmed with anger that he takes a spear and drives it through them both. And then the plague stops. Now that's not our text for today, so I can't go into much further detail than that. I know some of us might find that terribly offensive. I mean, shouldn't they have been able to do whatever they wanted? Shouldn't they have had some liberty? What they needed was a good old dose of the 1960s, but that just wasn't the case. See, this, this was not a matter of sexual freedom. This was treason against the king of the highest order. See, the way they practice their sexuality could not be separated from their worship any more than ours can. Do we get that? So we see very clearly this prohibition against the way of the nations. It is indeed dangerous. And yet, the second thing we see in our text is that the way of the Lord provides safety. So we see the prohibition against the the way of the nations, it is dangerous, but in its dangerousness, the, the way the Lord provides safety. In fact, in chapter 18, the Lord calls his people to be holy, to be different, for his glory and for their safety. So the Lord does this by identifying the danger. He identifies the danger for them. He defines the danger and then he reveals its true cost. Let's break those down individually. First, the Lord graciously identifies the danger. He identifies the danger. 
In verses 6 through 17, the Lord prohibits the Israelites from having sexual relations with close relatives. Just think about the protection this would have afforded the most vulnerable members of that society. In a society comprised of, of, of clans who were made up of close relatives, this rule would have also served to safeguard the integrity of that family clan system as well. Verse 18 is very likely a prohibition against polygamy. At the very least, it's a verse that prohibits you from marrying your wife's sister. This is followed by a prohibition against sex with a woman who is menstruating, adultery, homosexuality, bestiality. And right in between all those regulations on Israel's sexual conduct is the prohibition against offering the children of Israel to Malak, a god in the land of Canaan. The point is, and here's what we need to hear. The point is, the Lord alone can identify what is good and evil. He does so for His people through His revealed Word, the Holy Scriptures. Today, as much as He did then, it is not up to us to decide what is right and what is wrong. The Lord identifies what is evil in His sight. He also defines it for what it really is. The Lord not only identifies the danger, He defines the danger. And and, and here's why He identifies it and defines it. It's because we are often tempted to make light of it. So is Israel. If you would put your eyes on verse 17, you would see what the Lord says about these sexual practices. He says, it is wickedness. Verse 22 says, it is an abomination. Verse 23 says, it is perversion. The sexual behavior prohibited by chapter 18 is moral, immoral, corrupt, and depraved. It stands in sharp contrast to the holy moral character of the Lord. These sexual acts are a disgrace, an atrocity, a horror. They are really a twisted parody of what God intends for sexual union. They are counterfeit, inevitably twisting a person's understanding of who God is and who they are. Perverse sexual activity dehumanizes us and others. It objectifies and God's word defines these things. His word is a light unto our path so we can see these things for what they really are. It's like putting on x-ray glasses and so we can see the heart of things. And at what, what at one time appeared so beautiful and pleasurable, all of a sudden is seen for the decay and corruptness that it actually resides in. As it says in Proverbs chapter 5, Solomon's warning his son. And he says, for the lips of an immoral woman drip honey and her mouth is smoother than oil. See that? The Bible actually recognizes it's very tempting, but he goes on. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. The Lord not only identified the sexual sin and defines it for what it really is, but the Lord also warns Israel of its true cost. The Lord warns Israel of the true cost of this danger. Church family, don't be deceived. This, by the way, is how sin really works, especially our students in here. Um, You need to hear this part very clearly. Sin, particularly sexual sin, always promises more than it can deliver, and it always costs more than it advertises. Sexual sin and sin in general always promises more than it can deliver, and it always costs more than it advertises. 
Sin, especially sexual sin, promises to meet your unfulfilled longings. And, and admittedly, it does sometimes in the short run deliver. But the cost in the end is far more than anyone understands. Really, as C.S. Lewis writes it in Screwtape Letters, uh, it creates an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. Can't put it much better than that. That's what it does. It promises to satisfy, but instead it only demands more and more for less and less satisfaction. But not only does it promise more than it can deliver, it also costs more than it advertises. In Leviticus 20, you find instructions on how Israel was to handle when someone transgresses this law, but it also reveals the price tag of sexual sin. If You remember last week when I mentioned that the, the drumbeat of this literary section from 18 to 20 is, uh, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, the Lord is God, which is everywhere, boom, boom, boom. Well, if chapter 20 has a drumbeat... Chapter 20's drumbeat would be, shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Shall surely be put to death, their blood is upon them. Over and over again. This is the real cost of sexual sin. It costs everything. It does. It costs everything. And so the Lord graciously warns Israel... The cost of sexual sin, like all sin, is your life. For the wages of sin is death. Okay, let's bring this home and apply it to us here and now. What is the application for us today? How does this apply to a community of covenant believers who walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that ultimately, as we even saw last week, our covenant relationship with the Lord does not depend on our obedience, but His Well, the first thing I want us to clearly see from the text and uh, from the application here is that the nations are still a danger to the people of God. The nations are still a danger to the people of God. Don't miss this. Amy and I were talking about this this week. Now, instead of the people being driven out before Israel so that the people of God take a land that is supposed to be rid of its inhabitants, we are now driven into the nations. We are scattered among the nations. We live smack dab in the middle of the nations, right in the middle of a culture that rivals the worst pagan cultures that ever existed. Not worse. Sometimes we can think that this is the most depraved culture that ever existed. It's not, but it certainly rivals them. I mean, we still have child sacrifices. More than 63 million since 1973. 63 and a half million. We even have legal prostitution in some states. We used to say that sex sells, but now instead we just sell sex. Our education system actually promotes sexual activity and the false ideology of gender identity, making room for every child to do what is right in their own eyes. Our media demonstrates the complete moral bankruptcy of our culture. Sex, violence, vulgarity have replaced wit, story development, and moral lessons. Right and wrong are considered archaic categories that have been replaced in our stories now by what feels right or wrong for me, of course. These cultural realities have even infiltrated the church. 
So the nations are still a danger to the people of God, and we need to hear that and treat them as such. But friends, not only are the nations still a danger to the people of God, God's way still provides safety. God's way still provides safety. The Lord still calls us to be different. The Lord still calls His people to be holy as He is holy. In fact, we said this last week, we have not received a lower ethical standard this side of the cross, but a higher one. According to God's holy and inspired word in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4, the Bible says, Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, adulterers God will judge. Let me be clear in case you're wondering what this means. Any and all sexual activity outside of the marriage between a man and a woman dishonors and defiles the marriage bed. In fact, I've got to, I got to, okay, let me say that again. Any and all sexual activity outside of the marriage between a man and by man, I mean adult human male, and woman, and by woman, very clearly, I mean adult human female, any of it dishonors marriage and defiles the marriage bed. And here's the part, here's the part I struggle with, is, is we would say vehemently, I agree with that, but, but if you're focusing right now only on the part that speaks against homosexuality and the trans identity movement and not listening to what I'm saying that any and all sexual activity outside of the marriage between a man and a woman defiles the the marriage bed, you might be part of the problem. Because the reality is, friends, we've lived in a culture, particularly this culture, where we're looking at the worst practices of what the world does, and we say, at least I'm not there. But you want to know the amount of couples that I counsel in premarital counseling who are already living together? It's higher than 75%. Now, I'm not going to marry them if that's the case. Why? Because I love them. And, And we need, as the church, to see this as vile as we see the other. And we don't. We treat that as, listen, I'm just shooting for as long as my kids are straight and it could be worse. No. God's word's very clear. Any and all sexual activity outside of the marriage bed between a man and a woman defiles and dishonors the marriage bed. We need to act as if this is the case. I want to be clear as I possibly can. All sexual activity outside of marriage is sexually immoral. The writer of Hebrews says that God will judge fornicators and adulterers. The Lord still identifies the danger. He still names it for what it is. And He still warns His people of the true cost. Don't be deceived. That has not changed. In fact, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In verses 2 through 8, Paul goes through this and he warns them. He says this. He says, For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is the will of God for you, that you be sanctified. What does that sanctification look like? Paul writes this, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That is, do not walk like the nations. Walk like the Lord. It's saying the same exact thing. 
Verse 6, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also forewarned you and testified. Paul's warning them and us, do not be deceived. The sexual immoral will incur the judgment of God. Verse 7, for God did not call us to uncleanness but in holiness. Now, Now listen, there are many people who even claim to love Jesus who would disagree with everything that I'm saying here. Who would even tell us, you know what, you need to lighten up a bit. That God's grace has given us freedom to do as we please. I just, if you are here and you're one of those people, just hear this verse in verse 8 of 1 Thessalonians 4. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. That's New Testament. Rejects not man, you reject God. Now, hear me. This is not to browbeat God's people. It's to protect God's elect. This is to encourage us to pursue holiness together. This is to be an encouraging word, not discouraging. And so how do we respond to this at the people of, as the people of God? What is our response to be? Well, first and foremost, I think it's simple. Our first response to hearing this is we repent. We repent. We repent. We repent corporately with tears that we are part of an evangelical culture that has abandoned holiness and cares nothing about sexual immorality. We are part of that. And then individually, brother or sister, if if you're struggling with sexual sin, repent. Please, if you love the Lord, repent, confess that, find someone and share that. You need to bring what's in the dark into the light. And if you don't know the Lord, if if you know you're walking in sexual sin and are not sure if you even belong to Christ, then cry out to the Lord and ask for His grace. He is abundantly faithful and will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Please find someone who loves Jesus and ask them how you might honor Him with your life, including your sex life. I mean, just real straightforward, do as Paul commanded in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee sexual morality. Flee it. Run. Take whatever allows you on your smartphone to view those things off. Or better yet, throw your smartphone into a lake if you have to. Do whatever it takes, but flee it, please. Secondly, we not only need to repent, we, we need to be equipped. We, we desperately need to be equipped. Hear me now. Our appetites for the sensual and vulgar were not formed overnight. I'm I'm talking to us. Listen, I I know this is what we do, right? We, We say, well, compared to our culture, our appetites are decent. But we need to take that to the Lord and ask Him to really search our own hearts and our willingness to subject ourselves to the obscene and vulgar. That willingness, again, was not formed overnight. And so I encourage you, mortify Kill that appetite. You need to starve it and feed on the things of God. Feast on His Word. Feast on prayer. Feast on fellowship with the saints. So we need to repent. We need to be equipped. And lastly, friends, we need to purposely engage our culture. Hear me. This is important. We need to purposely engage our culture. Church family... We are not ashamed of sex. Parents, we need not... 
to be ashamed to speak to our children about sex. Our God made it. When it is in the context of marriage, it is good. So we actually need to be a voice of reason in the current state of sexual chaos and moral depravity. And if we're faithful, we are going to be accused, even by confessing Christians, of being prudish in our morality and archaic in our thinking. That's the cost of following the Lord. Let us learn to answer their insults with a godly appreciation for the beauty and glory of sex. We are not prude. We must learn to enjoy sex more fully as we experience it as a pointer to God. We must learn how to articulate how sexual freedom is actually just slavery to the flesh and how our culture is set on the inevitable crash course with the absolute holy morality of its creator and king. But Christian, we must do all three of these things. Repent, equipping ourselves, and being purposeful about engaging our culture while remembering that the Lord has not given us a new bar to cross over. That is, this is not a test you must pass. Praise be to God. Please don't forget what we learned last week. We are partakers of a new covenant that has been established and secured through the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? We are not only receiving the protection of God's prohibitions, but we actually have His Holy Spirit to enable us to obey them. That's a huge difference between this side and that side of the cross. Friends, we have the precious promises of God. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6, that He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Romans 8 3. Which tells us, whom he called, these also he justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Verse 37 of Romans 8, yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And for this reason, as Paul writes in Philippians 2, we must work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good pleasure. And it is His good pleasure that we keep the marriage bed undefiled. That we do not follow the nations, but instead we faithfully submit to His good, perfect, and pleasing will. Let's close with a word of prayer as our deacons come down or take with us in the Lord's Supper. Gracious Father, we confess together that you have called us to glorify you in all we do. Whether we have the gift of celibacy or the gift of sexual desire with a covenant spouse, we give you thanks for that. We pray that you would help us to remember that judgment starts with the household of God. Lord, that you would search our own hearts and convict us of sin. Help us in our weakness to lean on your promises. Help us to starve those appetites we have sinfully and willfully fed for years. Help us instead to have an appetite for those things that honor you, chiefly for your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might know him and be known in him. 
Grant us grace to respond in a way that honors you. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. We are about to partake in the Lord's Supper. And as we do, I want to give you the invitation. Certainly, friends, this is a heavy sermon um, because of what we face on a day-in, day-out basis in our culture and not only that, but in our own lives. Let me urge you, the first step in all that is simple repentance. This is what the Lord's Supper grants us the opportunity to do. As we reflect on the body of Christ broken for us and on his blood spilt for us, what greater time to see our need to continually repent of sin before his cross, knowing that as we do, those sins have been paid for by the precious sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And we, and we now have his spirit to enable us to obey. So I want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you've struggled with this, that you would take this precious time now to confess and to repent unto the Lord. And then after our service, as we conclude, that you would take time to confess to a brother or sister, to ask them to help you, to hold you accountable. Whatever it takes involved in getting over this particular sin and having victory over it, we need to do. Why? Because he's worthy. That's why. So as we participate in the Lord's Supper, we do invite this primarily for our covenant church members to partake of, but it is a sign and reflection of what the Lord has done in our life and the power he's given us by the righteousness spilt out in his blood that we can have victory over sins like these. So let's take this time to now quietly pray among ourselves as we distribute the Lord's Supper.